Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I'm your host, and we are co-produced by my pal, Tristan Drew. And by the way, if you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. Leave us a review and comments on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And give us a shout on Facebook, Twitter, IG, and LinkedIn. We'd love to hear from you. Without further ado, I am so grateful to have Kurt Bardella. Kurt was a rising star as a staffer for high-profile political leaders such as Republican Senator Olympia Snow from Maine and Republican Congressman Daryl Issa when he famously chaired the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. <laughs> Anybody remember Benghazi, AIG, countrywide? <laughs> uh, Kurt later went on to build and lead Endeavor Strategies, which represented clients such as Breitbart, until early in 2016, when Kurt notably parted ways with his major client on principle. Go figure, somebody acting on principle. <laughs> it, was, it was a newsworthy event. Many of us will remember uh, when Corey Lewandowski, then Trump's campaign manager, seriously manhandled one of Breitbart's reporters. But we'll, we'll get into that incident. Since that time, our guest has not only switched party affiliation from Republican to Democrat, he was most recently a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and now runs, talk about kind of arbitrary, country music's only tip sheet, <laughs> daily tip sheet, The Morning Hangover. Kurt Bardella, how awesome of you to take the time. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on, Corey. You bet. You bet. So I, I want to start a little bit with your background. Mm -hmm. You were born in Seoul, Korea, adopted by parents who lived in upstate New York. Mm -hmm. and I'm somewhat familiar with upstate New York. I'm curious what that was like for a kid growing up in the 80s, uh, early 90s, that maybe had a different background, might have looked a little different than a lot of the other kids there? Yeah, I mean, the, the it's it's an interesting kind of, you know, observation about the human condition. I, I didn't realize there was anything different about me until other people pointed it out and, <laughs> and made the observation that, well, you look different than your parents. Why is that? Uh, to me, I, I didn't even understand why that was something that was being pointed out or made fun of or any of that. And so, uh, you know, I, I learned very early on that, you know, family isn't biological. You know, it, family is about, you know, creating an environment of, of love and support and being there for one another. Anybody can have a kid. We see that every day. Uh, but to but to have a family is a very different thing. And so it, it never really bothered me because I thought it was such a silly question in the first place. And it just didn't really reconcile with me why that was even a topic of conversation in any way. Um, you know, I never really growing up in a, in a white household identified with being a quote unquote minority the same way that, you know, minorities and minority families or immigrant families do. Uh, I didn't have the same uh, challenges because I grew up in a white family uh, that, that, other people of color experience in this country every day. 
so it was again, it was it was just a very different, you know, being an adoptee, uh, obviously being Korean, but having a white family, uh, you know, it, it was a very kind of unique upbringing, I think. Yeah, yeah. I've heard you on recent interviews over the last couple of years, one in particular with Michael Steele about a year ago, where it sounds like in your adult life, you've embraced your unique identity more, more in your adult life than it sounds like as a kid. Yeah, I think when you're a kid, you want everything to be kind of uniform. You don't want to be different. You don't want to necessarily stand out. And so I think part of me in my youth you know, just rejected the idea of, of being different in any way uh, because I didn't think it was relevant. I think later on, as, as, as you grow older and walk through life and experience life and get exposed to more things, you see, and I've certainly seen this firsthand, you know, the, the ugliness of racism and, you know, what it feels like to have racism, you know, thrown at you. And in my case, almost on a daily basis, um, especially through the advent of social media and, and people feeling more like they, they can appropriately express their racism somehow because they can tweet about it or, or message you on Instagram or something. And I think as I've seen that firsthand, it, it's definitely changed you know, my perspective, both on racism overall, but as well as my own you know, role, my own ethnicity. Uh, I, you know, I've had so many people who are Asian Americans reach out to me and tell me how heartening it is for them to see someone who looks like me you know, on TV, you know, representing them, speaking out for them. And I think that having the access to the platforms that I have, I have a responsibility to all the people who don't have a voice to try to speak for them and try to shine a light on things that oftentimes go overlooked and underreported and undercovered. And, uh, you know, and, and that's a responsibility that I take very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I have a, a, a new friend I've made over the last few months and, and she was a guest on another program we produce for the entertainment industry and uh, her name's Helen on Cutler. And I just, I'm, I love her, but she asked me a really convicting question in a loving way. Uh, she came on as a guest on this, this, this other program. And, and she said, how many other Asians have you had on this program? And I was like, shit, I, you're the first one. And I mm -hmm. couldn't believe that that was the case. And it's like bad on me, but like, I'm so glad that she asked the question. And, um, but I'm even more uh, grateful to her for, uh, participating with me in, you know, doing better going forward, you know? Well, and that's the thing we have to, you know, it's not enough to just talk about problems or, 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 you know, bemoan the problems of society. We have to play an active role in trying to make things better. And the only way to make things better is to, is to be able to have constructive and open conversations that are, there aren't accusatory that aren't, um, you know, meant to be overly divisive, but to instead try to enlighten. Yeah. And, and to invite people to, to be a part of that change. Right. And the only way things get better in this country overall is if people who, you know, haven't been, you know, directly, I think, aware of some of the problems to become aware and then right. to become part of that solution. Just yelling at one another, in, you know, in, into the infinite space isn't going to ultimately solve anything at all. You mean Twitter hasn't Twitter wars haven't solved world, world peace yet? <laughs> Shockingly not. Shockingly no, no. not. I, I was also curious. You moved to San Diego. You were about ten at the time. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that, that's about the time when kids start to identify as part of friend groups. How was it making such a drastic change at that time? Uh, it, you know, I mean, I'll tell you, going from upstate New York to San Diego is a pretty good trade-off. 
weather-wise, culturally, you know, uh, all of a sudden you're in a community that is very diverse, very minority-centric, especially with the Hispanic Latino community in Southern California. And so my experience really, uh, it was such a positive thing because I think that my horizons were broadened making that move and being just exposed to think broader uh, cultures that I don't think I would have had the same dynamics with in, in you know, Rochester, New York. You know, so it was a, a very, I think, significant inflection point for me uh, just as a person, because again, when you're surrounded by more diversity, what category you might fall in kind of becomes less and less important because you don't really stand out the same way. Mm. Uh, you, you know, there were, there were plenty of Asian Americans and, and, you know, and, and, and Hispanics and immigrants and minorities. Like there was a real melting pot of people that, that I you know, went, to, went to school with. And so it didn't really matter what anybody was when you're surrounded by that kind of diversity. Right, right. If my timeline is correct, that's right about the time that Buffalo lost four Super Bowls in a row. So you got to you got to avoid that suffering. <laughs> no, you know, I I endured all four of those. Uh, you know, oh, those were the Super Bowl from from ninety one to ninety four, uh, and then we moved to San Diego in the summer of ninety four. So I lived through all four of those. Unfortunately, oh, and to this day, I'm a diehard Bills fan. I got to say, I mean, it, it it was heartening to see them in the AFC Championship game this year uh, yeah. for the first time in you know more than two decades, making it into the playoffs. Yeah, I well, I, I don't know if this is going to end the. Uh, the interview prematurely, but one of the happiest moments of my life was sitting uh, in, in our living room in New Brunswick, New Jersey, watching wide, right. <laughs> oh, Scott Norwood. Yeah. For love of a field goal. I tell you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I was, uh, uh, I think that was the year I pretended to go to college. Uh, you and I actually have something in common. I went to, well, I pretended to go to college for a year, but I went right into the workforce. What would have been my sophomore year of college. I, um, I got recruited to be a stock stockbroker and oh. right away went into the workforce. So I was a broker during the day and I was going to this theater conservatory at night. I just kind of got my adult life going a little bit earlier, but that really caught my attention that you, I mean, you're a very accomplished person, but you didn't go the Harvard, Yale or college route at all. No, I, I knew pretty early on that I didn't, I had no interest in going to college. Um, I had felt that there was more for me to be gained through hands-on firsthand experience than, than a classroom setting. You know, I had a very early sense that I knew that my life would not revolve around math and science. <laughs> and so, the, you know, why would I subject myself? Like, I always hated the idea that I had to go and take certain classes because of a predetermined curriculum that that's the path I should take. And, and, and I just inherently disagreed with that. And uh, I was very fortunate that I had the opportunity to work for a member of the California state legislator right out of high school. I was still 17 at the time when I got that job. And I kind of felt like, you know, I mean, it's not like I'm doing nothing. I'm, I'm working for a member of the government. And so uh, I, I, will, I, will, I will go as far as that takes me. And if it turns out that maybe I need to go to college in a year or two, so be it, I'm young. I mean, there's no real negative by trying to take advantage of this opportunity that's been presented to me through just happenstance and chance. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and so I, I, I took that job and ne never looked back. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue that's a pretty good poli sci class uh, slash civics class, you know, just yeah. working for a state legislator. Uh, kind of like when I studied for the series seven, series 63, it, it was pr a pretty good finance class. Mm -hmm. By the time you were in your mid twenties, you were already a communications director for a congressman and then a press secretary for a U.S. Senator. 
What were some of the qualities that led you to having so much success at such a young age? I think it was a combination of, you know, right place, right time. Uh, you know, th- th- I think there's that saying that, you know, luck is when hard work and opportunity kind of collide. Uh, I-, I was the benefit of having, you know, people who took an interest in me uh, and mentored me, uh, you know, fostered my, my very uh, green potential and gave me opportunities to succeed. Um, I think that the, you know, there's just kind of an innate kind of drive and intuition that I think I've had for politics and media particularly that um, allowed me to stand out amongst my peers and, and give me these these opportunities to work for, you know, I mean, if you would have told me that, you know, in my, you know, mid, you know, late twenties that I would be already be, a, you know, again, working as a press secretary for a United States Senator, I probably would not have believed you um, if you had told the 18-year-old version of myself, no college degree, that that's where this path would lead. Um, but it was just, it was a great experience. Um, you know, for me, Capitol Hill was really my college, you know, and, and even the way that Capitol Hill is structured is so much like it, like an institution, an academic institution. I mean, we have, we have our own library, Library of Congress. We have our own cafeterias. There's a dry cleaner there. We have a gym. Uh, everyone kind of has their own, uh, you know, click and, 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 you know, well, you know, colleges have fraternities and sororities. Well, you know, we have caucuses and Republicans and Democrats and committees. And it's a, it's, it, you know, and it's a very young place. Um, and so I, I, I loved it. It was uh, such a great experience and to have the exposure and, and opportunities that I had working for the people that I did uh, was probably the best education I could have imagined. If I can ask you a tough question, do you think that some of the virtues that led to your success were also kind of like your kryptonite? In a way. Oh, absolutely. I mean, part of it, it's like there's no substitute for experience, and part of experience is learning how to do things wrong, and 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 how to screw up. And when you are someone who I think is viewed as uh, kind of like a blue chip prospect, like you would in sports, you know, you're kind of given the world on a platter. Yeah. But you don't necessarily have the boundaries or the know-how to stop yourself. Uh, you just kind of you know, in my case, at least you go, you just keep forging ahead because you've had success. It's come relatively easy at that point. You haven't faced the same professional adversity yet that a lot of people have, haven't paid the dues the same way. I, you know, most people, when you work on Capitol Hill, you start out as an intern and then you become a staff assistant and then, you know, a legislative assistant or a press assistant. Like my first day on the job in 2006 was as the press secretary, you know, for a member of Congress. Yeah. You know, I skipped a lot of steps along the way to, to, to get there. And I, I, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know yet. And I had to experience, I think, a lot of uh, you know, professional tumult and, and, and mistakes to put me in a position to be better at it than just talent. Right, right. I'm curious, you worked for California Republicans and mm-hmm. Olympia Snow, who's you know from Maine and arguably yep. a very moderate Republican. Not the yeah. same brand as, say, my wife is from Alabama, so Alabama Republicans are not of the same stripe. No, not at all. Did you have well-formed political opinions or philosophy when you entered in, or was it? Absolutely not. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I think more than anything, I was a product of my own environment. You know, I was working for a Republican as soon as I was out of high school. I it was so at that point. My entire network existed of only Republicans from the point from 17 until, you know, uh, until I left the Republican Party, basically. That was the only people that I worked with, talked with, socialized with, 
friends, the whole nine yards. And so when that's your only world, um, you know, it didn't occur to me to, to question the ideology in any way, because this is where my opportunities lie. It's not like if I decide two years in, you know what, I don't agree with this. I'm going to go be a Democrat that there's going to be a job waiting for me with yeah. the Democrats, because that's not how the world works in reality. And so, uh, from my vantage point, it was you know these people who gave me opportunities when they didn't have to. It was these people who invested in me and believed in me, uh, you know, who who supported me, and I was loyal to them. I'm curious about a job like communications director and press secretary. It seems like you quickly came around to understand and or intuitively understood that the job was largely to uh, raise the profile of your boss, uh, to author, mm-hmm. author a certain narrative. What what was that job like? You know, it was a lot of fun, really. Uh, you know, interacting with the 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 major publications that you know tell the national story of our country day in and day out. Uh, working with the CNNs and Fox Newses and New York Timeses and Wall Street Journals of the world uh, for me it was it was almost intoxicating, really. Uh, you know, I got a high off of that type of interaction, and you know, getting my boss in those publications was a big deal to me. Um, you know, when you're a member, you're one of 435 in the house, right? So there, there are 434 other press secretaries working, hustling, trying to get their guy, their girl in, in, you know, in the news. And that's what you're competing with. And, and that's how I approached my job. It was a competition. I'm trying to get my person to stand out more than everybody else's. Uh, and especially when you feel like, you know, you have someone, and I think this is part of the reason why I developed a reputation uh, for being good at what I did was because the person I was working for at the time was he was a uh, just a mid-level backbenching company. He was there was nothing special or unique about about him. He, you know, he, he he did not stand out in any particular way. He was not seen as someone who was going to be a major player. And yet here he was getting on national news every night, being a a, a daily fixture on CNN or Fox News, and you know, and in the press. And a lot of people attributed that exposure and visibility to the work that I was doing. And that really helped propel me forward and get to get even bigger opportunities. Right, right. There was one incident, maybe there are other incidents, but one in particular that was very uh, noteworthy, where it seems like you got majorly played by a journalist. Is that a fair way to put it? Or uh, I'm thinking of the, the, was it the Mark Leibovich book? Oh, that was, yeah, yeah. That, so that was later on. That was after, that was my, so that's after I was with ISA, the oversight committee. Okay. So that was my third member of Congress that I had worked for. Oh. I don't think it's fair to say that Leibovich played me. You know, I went into that, I think, just very eyes wide open. You know, I volunteered to be a part of that. He didn't trick me into it or anything. Okay. You know, I think that a lot of it was made out to be something that it wasn't. And, uh, and it was also an exercise in how, I think, self-important the political press can be at times. Mm. The fact that uh, it was made out to be this massive scandal where, uh, you know, the allegation of, you know, uh, and the, per- the perception was, oh, Kurt's working with Leibovich on this tell-all book and it's going to, uh, you know, expose all kinds of things about journalists, which was stupid and wasn't yeah. the case at all. And, 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 and when the book finally came out like four years later, it bared out exactly what, what I said it was at the time, which was I was sharing with them correspondences I was having with reporters and producers to show how I do my job. It, it was really that simple. So the big sexy emails were, hey, Fox News wants to have you on at five o'clock. Can you do it? <laughs> sure. Sounds like a plan. Great. The Washington media, though, you know, I had made myself a target at that point too, being very visible, very high profile. 
there was a perception amongst, I think, my colleagues that created a lot of je jealousy, frankly, that I was about getting myself in the news more than my boss. Um, that was always a misconstrued and complete folly of a narrative, in my opinion. Yeah. The reality is, if I wasn't supposed to be as visible as I was, my boss would never have allowed that to happen. Right. The reason why I was visible was because it was by design. And in, in, you know, and the people who took shots at me all the time, oh, Kurt loves being quoted in this and appeared on this. And it's like, if that wasn't supposed to happen, it wouldn't. Like, you know, use your brain here, folks. But it was it was a very popular narrative that 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 allowed them to kind of tear into me a little bit. And I think the unfair element of what happened in all of this wasn't that I participated in it, wasn't that it was reported and I lost my job over it. It was the idea that I was doing something that wasn't at the behest of my superiors and who weren't fully aware and on board with it. Yeah. Uh, you had written an article, I think one time describing that meeting that you had with Congressman Issa. And it was basically like, okay, boss, I guess I got to take one on the chin for the team, you know, where he had yeah. to let you go. But our listeners should note that the kicker to this whole incident in 2011 is that ISA hired you back, what, like six months later? Six months to the day that I was fired, How I was about brought that? back, Yeah, which was, and people will never believe this, that wasn't by design. It wasn't planned out. It, it happened very organically. I actually regret going back. I wish I hadn't in retrospect, oh. knowing what I know now. It, it ended up being a very underwhelming uh, and upsetting situation to come to, to go back because they brought me back in a role that didn't allow me to really do what I was good at. Mm. And I basically spent two years, I shit you not, sitting on my chief of staff's couch, taking naps and playing darts on his dartboard. Oh, I didn't do anything. It was such a waste of time. And it was, uh, and it really, like, it had a major effect on my confidence, uh, you know, as, as a professional. Like, you know, part of me thought, well, maybe I'm not good at this anymore. Maybe if, if they don't want to put me in the game, then maybe they see something that I don't. And it took me leaving and going to do a campaign in Santa Barbara that was probably viewed as somewhat beneath me at the point that I was in my career, but it allowed me to get away from Washington, get away from all that noise, do what, I, what I'm good at, and, uh, and, and was very successful on that campaign. And, uh, and that kind of rehabilitated my own confidence, and I know what I'm doing. I'm still good at this. I, still, I can still play. Yeah. So leaving you know, ISA part two was actually <laughs> probably the best thing for me. Uh, and, and again, I wish, I wish I just hadn't gone back knowing what I know, because it, it was just not a, not a great experience. It was a notable time just in politics at that moment. It, uh, and I, I'm trying to figure out whether it was ISA chapter one or ISA chapter two, uh, if we're calling it that. Um, Republicans won over 60 seats in the two, 2010 midterm election. Uh, your boss took over the chairmanship of very high profile committee. You were really emerging as uh, I think one one journalist described you as a high risk, high return kind of a professional in, in <laughs> politics. Um, yeah. What, what was that? So is my timeline all, all right? Because there seemed to be a lot going on at that time. Yeah, I mean, we had done such a great job um, of elevating ISA in 2009 and 2010. And, you know, he was, you know, I remember there was a story that was written something like the most feared man in Washington. And there was. <laughs> There was all of this hype about him being chairman of the committee with all the subpoena authority and you know, the ability to have all these hearings. And, uh, you know, and, and the Obama administration was floundering at this point in time. You know, they had lost control of Congress, which was a big body blow to their agenda. 
you know, I would make the case that Barack Obama's legislative presidency ended the day that Republicans took back Congress. And he spent, you know, the next six years after that really not doing what he thought he would be able to do when he was elected in 2008. And ISA was you know, one of the most high profile visible guys in Congress at this point in time, which meant, you know, through osmosis, I was one of the most high profile visible staffers at this time. Uh, you know, again, the, the, the benefit of hindsight and experience, you know, there was a lot of hype thrown my way. There was a yeah. lot of, a lot of what, what, what I would categorize now as false praise being heaped on me. But at the time, I didn't know that. I, I, I fell into the, the typical trap of youth of believing your own hype. Uh, it developed a, a pretty healthy ego, which probably may be insufferable to be around at times. <laughs> but, but, you know, again, it's, it, yeah, it was, it was a heck of a roller coaster ride and it was most of the time, a lot of fun. I got to say, yeah. I mean, I look back at that time very fondly. Um, and it was a, uh, it, it, you know, I'd never experienced anything quite like that environment and, you know, working for someone who is kind of on his way to becoming a rock star politically, um, you know, being one of the kind of right-hand guys that's part of that organization, uh, pretty, pretty young at the time going through that. You know, I think I was 27, 28 years old or something when that's all going on. Wow. Um, you know, so, I mean, I look back now, like, God, I was just a baby. Like I didn't know shit, you know, <laughs> I mean, good grief. Yeah. The fact that I was in that situation is, is still kind of like, how did that even happen? I like, I did not belong at that level yet. Yeah. Uh, but you don't know what you don't know. I mean, that's kind of the benefit and the curse of, of youth is you don't know any better yet. And you just kind of keep rolling along until you kind of hit that, you know, hit that fork in the road. Yeah. During that moment when you were let go from Congressman Ice's office, those are moments we either find out we have no friends <laughs> or that we have a small <laughs> circle of really true friends who will stick by us through, you know, thick and thin. What was that experience like for you? Described a little bit about taking a, a campaign up in, in Santa Barbara. What was that whole experience like for you? Well, you know, the night that I got fired was actually one of the best nights of friendship I've ever been the beneficiary of, because that night about 14 people showed up at my one bedroom apartment Wow! with pizza and trivia pursuit and just said like, you're not sitting here alone tonight. Like we're going to have a good time. And I did. It was a great time. That's awesome. Um, you know, and it's something that I'll never, never forget that moment as long as I live. You, you really do find out who your friends are when you're down. Yeah. And you and you also find out what's really important and what's not important. You know, when your professional life is so tied to who you work for, especially when you're a staffer, your life is your boss. That's just, that's what you sign up for. That's how it is. But when you wake up one day and you're no longer Kurt Bardella, spokesperson for Daryl Issa, you're just you're just Kurt, unemployed Kurt. You know, <laughs> filling out unemployment forms. It's you know, it's like that's a very it's a very humbling experience. Um, yeah. You know, there's a there's a you know saying in you know boxing that the view from the canvas is educational. Well, I've had a lot of education, uh, you know, <laughs> staring at staring at the ceiling from the map. Oh um, man, yeah, yeah, that's it's humbling. But it was but, also it was also during that time though, uh, and this is why people always say, "Would you do anything differently?" The answer is, of course, I wouldn't. Um, where I found one of my greatest passions uh, in life, and that's country music. I was uh, unemployed, not doing much. A friend of mine had an extra ticket to a show, an amphitheater show down the road. And I said, sure, I'm not doing anything. Probably a good idea to get out of the house. Yeah. Went to the show and had the time of my life and became a country music fan that night. Wow. Wow. So that it just happened like that. You weren't listening to country music before then? Just kind of nope. discovered it? And look at you, just man. discovered that, it that night. Now, now you're like a mover and shaker. Like people are just, you know, can't wait to open up your, your newsletter every morning. 
<laughs> it's uh, I mean, if you would have told me back then that it would lead to where I'm at now in the country music community, I never would have believed you. But it's it's the great, it's one of the greatest things that's ever happened to me. That's awesome. That's awesome. You know, having read about you and heard a number of your interviews, you seem more complex than you know some salacious story might depict. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I to be candid, I guess I, I guess I I could be guilty of having made the same assessment, but uh, it's so cool, like you know, really diving into somebody's background and reading a lot of your material, hearing a lot of your interviews. But, you know, I, I would imagine that you have to face some of that um, perception. So uh, number one, is that something that you're aware of that that is happening? And number two, if so, how do you work through that when it does happen? You know, there are people, and I think that this is one of the failings at times of political journalism, um, who they cover what's going on like you would a sports contest. And there's a lot of sports in politics. There are winners and there are losers. You know, there are people who are up, there are people who are down. But you're also dealing with people. And I look back at how some of the things that were written about me when I was 26, 27 years old that were written by 40, 50 year olds. And it's like, you're writing this about a 20 something year old kid. Yeah. And there is no real, I think, conceptualizing of that the way that they covered me um at the end of the day what i've learned at least is i honestly could give a shit what these people think it doesn't matter you know i mean whatever whoever's up who's ever down whoever's you know winning the day on twitter it doesn't matter um i'm very fortunate that i have a very small group of people in my life whose opinions m mean everything to me and outside of that what anyone else thinks it doesn't register with me it's not important I think that when you've had the type of ups and downs that I've had, you really do learn what's important to you as a human. And that actually has to supersede everything else, politically, professionally, whatever. The right people in your life are, 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 are saying you're doing the right thing. The right people in your life are behind what you're doing. Then everything else is kind of just noise and it doesn't really matter. I think also building a life outside of politics for me yeah. was probably one of the healthiest things that's ever happened to me having a life in this case in the country music community that is universally positive that is a 100 positive experience that has nothing to do with anything going on here in washington at all is uh, has also helped kind of broaden my perspective um, on and, and how i view the world and there are people who are going to judge me and there are people who are going to read again news articles that were written about me from 10 11 12 years ago uh and I mean, if, if, if that's what you're going to base your opinion on, if so, like, okay, I mean, that, that I can't do anything about that. It's not really my problem. Yeah, uh, I am. I am who I am. I think I have a pretty good sense of self. Uh, I'm comfortable with who I am. And, you know, if it doesn't fit into anyone's perceptions, I mean, yeah, so be it. You know, it is what it is. That's a really healthy outlook. I, I'm a little bit older than you. So I, I wish... I wish I had a little bit more of that, but I'm still a pretty thin-skinned, sensitive guy. So. <laughs> but uh, working on it, working on it. Um, I, and I want to get to the morning hangover, but I, I wanted to ask you about a now that now infamous incident that I, I referred to earlier occurred in the 2016 campaign involving a Breitbart reporter, Corey Lewandowski, Trump's campaign manager at the time. Seems like that was a real turning point for you, or maybe a last straw. Could you remind our audience about that incident and the significance it played in your own evolution? Yeah. So, you know, to be Breitbart was a client of mine. You know, I'd started my own PR firm, you know, back in 2013 at this point. So this is, you know, three years into that. 
Breitbart was a client. And for me, that, that's all that they were. This wasn't personal. It wasn't ideological. It was, they were a client. I treated them as such, much like any PR firm would in America. There was an incident where Trump's then campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski, at a rally, kind of aggressively grabs one of our reporters, Michelle Fields' arm. She had bruises on her arm, uh, yanks her to the ground. And what happened over the next 24 hours was Breitbart basically threw Michelle under the bus because they wanted to protect Donald Trump and his campaign. You know, and for me, it's like, hey, I didn't sign up to be a part of Donald Trump's propaganda arm. Uh, Donald Trump is someone that I am repulsed by. And if that's how this is going to go, I don't want to have any part of that. And if you're going to throw your own reporter under the bus, I don't want to be part of that organization either. So I, I made the decision you know, in the middle of all that to say, you know what, as a, per, as a PR professional, I can no longer represent you to the best of my abilities. And when you get to that point, you, the right thing to do is to walk away. And I left it at that. You know, that, and that's, I sent a two-sentence email to the Breitbart leadership saying exactly that and resigned. Uh, what I wasn't expecting was them leaking the news that I had left to the media. Uh, I had actually already had a trip to Nashville planned three days later anyway. So I was like, I'm resigning. I'm going to go to Nashville for a week, not even think about this crap. It won't matter. Uh, I, was, I was not looking to make any headlines. I was not looking to make any trouble. I was just resigning an account and leaving it at that, but they leaked it. Why? I don't know. And so just now you start kind of being, it's like now I'm my own client. So they're going to start attacking me for resigning. And so I have to go <laughs> and defend myself. And so that night for the first time I went on CNN tonight with Don Lemon and did an interview with him where uh, I, I left him. I literally left him speechless uh, because I just told the truth. And that moment went viral. What a novel concept, telling the truth. Yeah, right. Go figure. <laughs> uh, you know, and that kind of began my career you know, as a, as a commentator on cable news. I started being booked on CNN and MSNBC pretty regularly. And, and I've been on, you know, more than 100 times a year ever since then. Yeah, yeah. You subsequently left the Republican Party and declared mm -hmm. yourself as a Democrat. How hard was that to make that? I mean, you're, it sounds like your beliefs were evolving on on specific issues, but I can't imagine it's easy to leave essentially your whole professional life and, and declare. No, it's not. Um, you know, and here's the thing: I, I always say I don't think it was an evolution of of ideology. It was more about diving into policies that I just never took the time to really know anything about. Mm. Um, I always tell people Republicans don't sit around and talk about climate change or gun control or inequality or racism. That is never a part of any social conversation I've ever had in my Republican life ever. Like, you know, it's kind of like the truism of ignorance is bliss. These are not things that come up at cocktail parties in the Republican party. However, as I, as I got out of that world and started having uh, a different set of friends that, that came from different perspectives and viewpoints, those conversations are are regular in Democrat circles, in my opinion. Yeah, um, and it was through those conversations with different people that I started exploring uh, things that I never thought about before, honestly. And and the more that I talked with them, the more that I agreed with them on a lot of things. And and then finally one day, you kind of had that realization: there is nothing in the Republican Party that I agree with right now. And I remember being on TV, and and they introduce you. Joining us now is you know Republican consultant Kurt Fardella, and I remember having this twinge going like, ugh, I don't like being called a Republican. And, and, and when you make, when you kind of have that moment, you're like, you know, that kind of tells me something that I react that way to that word and my name next to it. And so 
knowing that I'm going to basically blow up my entire professional life and, and a lot of my personal friendships probably along the way, uh, I'm just going to, again, be true to myself and tell it like it is. And, and, and so I uh, declared that I'm not just I'm not just leaving the Republican Party. I'm not just a never Trumper or an anti Trumper. Like I'm, I'm a Democrat and I'm going to say so and let the let the chips fall where they will. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it seems like a lot of the conservative positions or uh, philosophy aspects of the philosophy that I'm drawn to is just doesn't that Republican Party doesn't exist anymore. I had a conversation recently with mm-hmm. Charlie Sykes where he described diving into everything that William F. Buckley ever wrote, you know, or hearing about some of these conversations. I don't know, maybe it exists at AEI or, or a think tank like that, but it really just doesn't, it doesn't occur, at least from my observation, in day-to-day Republican conversations. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's a, it's a really sad point in our society that we've reached because I think that there are some things that we just can't compromise anymore that we used to probably look past. You know, I know that for someone like me, if you are a racist, I'm not going to be able to reconcile that. You know, if you are someone who supports Donald Trump, I don't I, I'm not going to be your friend. It's like it, 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 to me, it's very black and white at this point, because what you are supporting politically is someone who who, who believes that I am less than him because he is white, someone who believes that violently insurrection, you know, violent insurrection is, is an appropriate means of protest in America. Yeah. It's like the Republican party is so far gone. Like they don't, the, the only thing that the Republican party today stands for is, is, is Donald Trump. It's not about, there is no conservative ideals anymore. Like there was only one political party in America that actually cares about democracy. And the other party spends all of their time now trying to undermine it. You know, have taken recorded votes to declare that the the election that we just had wasn't legitimate. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's... and I'll tell you that, like, we are. I don't think people fully understand how close we are to the end of America. When one of the two major political parties no longer accepts the premise that there are winners and losers in elections, and that the losers have to accept that, as has been what our entire system has been built upon, when that starts falling apart. It's it's pretty much over. Yeah. And it scares the hell out of me that even after seeing what we saw on January 6th, that there are people who are still propping up the lie that the election was stolen. People in the Republican Party who are even saying out loud, United States senators, that they don't think what happened on January 6th was actually a violent insurrection. They're espousing insane conspiracy theories that it was really a bunch of anti-Trump people Oh, God. Who, who who created this to make it look like it was like, I mean, good God. Two days ago, Ron John is saying this bullshit. Yep. And so when that's how far one side is gone, I like there's no, I don't know if there's a way back, honestly, at that point. Well, I, I want to push back on one point, but, but then underscore uh, most of what you're saying. I have not gotten to the point where I'm ready to write off anybody who's voted for Donald Trump. There were 74 million of them, you know, and I I have really dear friends and I'm still, you know, I have uh, a weekly Thursday night get together with a good buddy of mine and he voted for Donald Trump. But I, I understand how he got there. Now, he obviously thinks differently about what's 
happened subsequently. But I understand how we got there. And a lot of some of my best friends, I have a few really dear, dear friends who ended up voting for Trump this time around. And everybody I know who I've been able to have that conversation with, it has a lot to do with a genuine concern about a certain wing of Democratic Party that, you know, as they express the Biden, what they're concerned about, the Biden administration and what it's going to do, it's going to look a lot more like, you know, I'm. I know you know what's coming, but a- AOC's agenda or Bernie Sanders' agenda, and they're genuinely right. concerned about what that means for uh, the economy, what that means for our culture, if they're going to be canceled for expressing their views, uh, what that means for their Second Amendment rights. And I understand, I don't necessarily share all those concerns, uh, nor am I the biggest AOC fan for that matter, but I at least understand where they're coming from. I think the the dividing line for me are those who are still saying, still purporting the big lie, still talking, you know, repeating the the Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, Will Cow mm-hmm. talking points about, oh, well, it, I've been hearing many people are saying that it was really Antifa. What did you expect when you stole a, a, a landslide election? Uh, you right. know, the, there was two or three bullet points that are still being repeated on Senate committees. Um, yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I where I find where it just drives me crazy. I, I live in California 25, which you might be familiar with. Um, mm-hmm. It's just north of L.A. We yeah. elected Mike Garcia by less yeah. than one tenth of one percent over Christy Smith and 350,000 people in this district voted. So you would think, I, 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 my hopes were raised because Mike didn't sign on to that amicus brief that right. uh, the Texas AG did. But January 6th, he voted that night, he voted to object to, he said he objected to Pennsylvania and Arizona's electoral counts, but I, I thought it was only the Pennsylvania that they were voting on. Anyway, he wrote a letter and said that he voted to object to those and gave, I thought it was just bullshit reasons. Um, but mm-hmm. Um, then he voted against impeachment. The one that really just the one to keep MTG on her committees, like, dude, we're not even voting her out of Congress, you know, like, which I, I think is fair. Like, you know, she was elected fairly by G- Georgia 14, but like she, she stalked and harassed a teenager who just saw almost, you know, a dozen and a half of his friends and teachers be slaughtered. And she thought that mm-hmm. this was okay. And but you're voting to keep her on the education committee. Like, like right. so I don't know. He's he's not representing the purple district that California 25 is. So that's no. anyway, sorry. I'm not the the uh, the analyst, but I, I just, you know, <laughs> some of the things that you're saying. Well, I mean, really but, accord. but it's like it's like my issue with people who who justify voting for Donald Trump behind things like, well, what if the Democratic Party becomes too progressive, I guess. And, and I always think, well, what exactly about that scares you? Equality? Like, is that something you, you have a problem with? Uh, addressing you know, uh, racial, gender inequality, equity for women in the workforce, dealing with climate change, the greatest threat to our entire world, uh, actually having common sense gun reforms. Like the things that they think that they're objecting to are things that on any other planet make sense. And the idea that this is what drives me nuts. The Republican Party is the party that gives tax breaks to billionaires. This is the party that turned a blind eye to the coronavirus that ravaged our economy. The reason why our country is falling apart is because of Republicans and the, and the people who say, well, I'm worried about the economy. 
We got half a million dead people in this country because of Republicans, in my opinion. We got businesses shut down because of Republicans. When the Republicans passed so-called COVID relief legislation, it didn't go to mom and pop shots. It went to people who own private plane companies that donated to the Republican National Committee. It's like, who do you think has a better chance at representing your interests? A billionaire or a bartender? Because AOC was a bartender. AOC knows more about hard work, living on a small wage, small businesses, than the guy who bankrupts every business that he touches. <laughs> well, I, w- I would go to bat for AOC over Donald Trump any day, any time, any hour. You know, like I said, I'm not, I, I, I don't think- But it's like, that's not my point is the people who say that have been brainwashed yeah. by right-wing propaganda into believing this folly that the Republican Party and you know the party that, by the way, when, when the going gets tough, they head off to Cancun to stay at the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> right. That they somehow care about working class Americans. That they somehow care about small business. And they they don't. Their policies tell you that they don't. Right. And so everyone who says, "Well, I voted for Trump because of the economy," I'm like, "What economy? Yeah. You destroyed the economy. What yeah. are you talking about? You're, you're talking to the wrong guy. I grew up in Jersey, so." You know, I, I I saw Donald Trump ruining AC before, not AOC, a Atlantic right. City. Atlantic before, City, yeah. I mean, it's like these people have been conned. Yeah, I had friends who graduated high school who got um, I, I graduated high school with who you know they started their first businesses, landscaping businesses, plumbing businesses, concrete businesses. Uh, a couple of them got contracts on some of those late '80s, early '90s projects in in uh, Atlantic City that that Trump was doing. And he was who he was back then, you know, Sure. he, he, uh, w- one of my friends ended up finally getting paid 30 cents on the dollar about 18 months after the fact. And that was after he lost his company. Another guy never got paid at all, ended up having to get, get a divorce because it ruined his, his company. It ruined mm-hmm. his life. But Donald Trump has always been Donald fucking Trump. Excuse me. Oh, language, I know. But, that's, you know. That's like when someone reveals who they are, it's best to believe them. I don't blame Donald Trump for what's gone on under his watch. I blame everybody who allowed it to happen, who somehow perpetuated the myth that this guy was a good business person or a good person at all when he's not. Yeah. Um, he's an effective thief. <laughs> it's like I, it's like I blame the people who have been duped into believing that that the guy who charges 500 bucks a night at, for, his, for his hotel cares about someone who makes you know 20 bucks an hour. Right. Like, I, I just don't believe it. And right. Right. People, you know, there, there are no victims when it comes to Donald Trump. They're only volunteers. That's an interesting. And the people who vote for Donald Trump have volunteered to to put their best interest in the hands of someone who would who would gladly sell them you know, to the nearest bidder if it was in his best interest. Well, just to push back just a little bit here, I, I read a story. So I, the way I understand how this perception can be made is that specific incidents where there are legitimate critiques are then become the prism through which you see an entire platform. Uh, the example I was going to use, I read a, um, a really detailed analysis yesterday in the dispatch about a writer who worked for the New York Times for the better part of 45 years, mm-hmm. where there was a misunderstanding about an incident um, that he had with students about racism where he used a, uh, a racially pejorative term and it, it was misunderstood that he was using it out of malice as opposed to mm-hmm. in a, a, a lesson, essentially. He was uh, in a teacher's role. 
So an incident like that, where he had to lose his job because of a misunderstanding of how he used the racial pejorative, uh, gets blown up to be like this lens through which we see, oh, he's racist. He needs to lose. Oh, but he, uh, he was canceled. He was, you know, whatever. Um, so I, I think it's, I think it's, it's wrong to take a specific incident where we can analyze and and use as an instructive moment, right? To then project it onto the entirety of anyone who didn't happen to vote for Donald sure. Trump. I think my problem with that is that the people who, who vote for Donald Trump who say what you just said are the same ones who told LeBron James to shut up and dribble, right. who, 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 who believe that Colin Kaepernick was wrong and the NFL was wrong to allow players to take either nationally. Like, they're all for speech, right. but if you say something they don't like, they're the very first to cancel you. Right. And so that's why I've always had that issue with Republicans who vote for Trump and say, like, well, AOC wants to cancel us all. Well, you're the ones who want to cancel every black athlete who has a problem with the national anthem. So what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to take everybody on an individual basis. You know, um, I do have a hard time identifying with folks, like I said before, about uh, that are, are still talking about the big lie and stuff like that. But I, I'm still trying to leave room for somebody who did end up voting for Trump, you know, and, and still have a relationship with them. But I don't know. It takes it takes hard work. I I don't want to cast everybody with the same, you know, with, with the same just, uh, conviction. I, you know? I'm, I'm kind of at the same point. If you voted for Donald Trump after four years of seeing what we saw, four years of, of him calling shithole countries, four years of both sides on Charlottesville, four years of putting kids in cages at the border, separating parents and families. I don't know how anyone can claim to be a Christian and actually vote for Donald Trump. This like, I, like how do you, people reconcile? What, what their Bible tells them about treating one another and the way that Donald Trump has treated humanity. Yeah. You know, I mean, where, where's the moral code when Donald Trump is literally having an affair when his wife is pregnant with a porn star that he pays off and lies about it? Where's that fall in the scripture of, 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 of everything, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's like, the, like this is the, the, the hypocrisy of Trump voters who cling to their 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 religion as some sort of moral shield and high ground, but refuse to actually apply that to their political leadership blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you a lot about that. Like I've gotten in some, not the most productive conversations because I have this proclivity to actually read my Bible and and know my Mm -hmm. Bible. Um, And I just piss off some of my friends that I've, I've gone to church with because I know what the Bible says, you know, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And that does not describe Donald Trump, you know, or at least Donald right. Trump gets on the wrong side of that ledger. You know, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. None of that describes Donald Trump. You know, you want to look at these these six things, no seven that the Lord hates. A lot of them, a lot of them, you can you can describe Donald Trump. Anyway, that's a whole other that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> but uh, I was going to ask you some things about that. Are there folks on the Republican side? You are so inside, right? Are mm-hmm. there folks on the Republican side who have a genuine faith or is it all just cynical? Is it all just like, you know, somebody as smart and educated and savvy as, as like a Josh Hawley? Is it just a completely cynical play? Yes. Oh, like, again, these people don't believe in any core conviction or, or ideology. They believe in power and they believe in fame and money. And that, and that is the only thing that drives them right now. The Republican Party is to do as I say, not as I do party. People like Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, when you look at where they started in their political career and where they are now, they are unrecognizable. Yeah. And the pandering that they, that they 
day in and day out engage in, the only cause for that is because they want more power, more visibility, more money, more fame. Um, and they're willing to, to do anything, including completely throw our country into a tailspin to achieve that. It's, it's really something to watch a party that spent the majority of my adult life preaching things about limited government, living within their means, fiscal responsibility, accountability, transparency, oversight, constitutional authority, spend four years completely just pissing on all of that and not thinking twice. So is it just a matter that, that the main driver of how what what Republican politicians say and do are is the comment section of Breitbart or opinionators on the radio? I would say that now it is. Yeah. I mean, the, the Republican Party is, is a party that is in a, in a self-fulfilling echo chamber. You know, Fox News says one thing, a, a politician parrots it, Breitbart writes about it, Fox News covers that. It was just all round and round they go. They're talking to one another. And the circle of people that they are talking with is actually getting smaller and smaller, even though it feels like it's getting larger. It's not. I'd like to believe that we live in a country where the majority of people here aren't racist, where the majority of people in this country believe that we need to have real societal reforms, real cultural reforms, that we have, honest to God, problems that need to be addressed. And I think by and large, majority of American people agree on issues like immigration, on gun reform, on climate change, on, on the economy. But it's the vocal minority that has this outsized influence on shaping our policies. The fact that right now, the most powerful senator probably in the U.S. Senate is, is a guy from West Virginia. Yeah, yeah tells you there's a disproportionality going on here. When you add up the total votes of senators who represent populations, um, you know, who voted for Joe Biden, uh, who voted for the certification of our election, and you add up the senators who, 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 who contested it, like the amount of people they represent is actually very small proportionally. But there's this kind of outsized voice that they have because of the way that our system was designed. And our system was designed in a way that never anticipated that one of the two political parties would want to dismantle that very system. And that's the flaw that we're seeing in our constitutional design. I was hoping that you'd give us a little bit of some, some green shoots. Like, look, I mentioned the dispatch. There's other independent media outlets like the bulwark that I'm a big fan of. There are, you know, Republican congressmen like Adam Kingsinger or senators like Ben Sass that I'd like to think that there they are green shoots, that there's this emerging eco. You were a senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, which I'll ask you about in a second. But there's I'd like to think that there's this emerging ecosystem where there is more of a loyal opposition, where there can be a dialogue between two principled philosophies, if you will. But that doesn't seem to be you seem to be a lot more pessimistic about that emerging ecosystem. Well, I'd say it's more realistic. Again, yeah, there are five Republicans, I guess you could say, <laughs> who, who, you know, who, who still, you know, articulate what the Republican Party used to be. But you know, let's be very clear. This isn't a Republican Party civil war that, that the war has been fought. One side demolished the other and it's not even close. And so while, yeah, there might be Romney, Kinzinger, Cheney. But OK, that, that, that that's like three. Yeah. Against the other 520 Republicans in office. I mean, right. uh, they, they're, they're, they are an outlier in their party now. They are not, they are not, they are the exception, not the rule. 
and and that's just the way that it is. I mean, that's just the, the, the reality of the math. Wow. So is there, what's, what's the road ahead? Can, can there be, a, is there a third party or does the Republican party just have so. to completely demolish itself or? Yeah, I think the primary has to just demolish itself. I mean, that's the reality is the only way that things in this country improve is if the Republican party just implodes completely and loses every election possible. Basically what happened to the California Republican party is going to happen at the national level. People forget that in the 90s, Republican Party in California was thriving. We had a Republican governor, we had a Republican and, and lieutenant governor, secretary of state, attorney general, Republican-controlled state assembly, and then they went full tilt to the right and lost everything and became a third party in California even. So what's happening nationally is a mirror in some ways of what happened to the California Republican Party. And so we already know intuitively how this story ends. The demographics in this country tell us where this is going. And we are going to be a majority, majority minority country, you know, in the next 15, 20 years. Yeah. And the Republican Party is is consistently doubling down on policies that alienate themselves from that demographic over and over and over again. And so there are going to always be now, I think, more Democrats and Republicans in America. And Republican Party will continue to get smaller. The voices within the Republican Party may get a little louder, but ultimately. I think that the only way that uh, that things can get better is if the party just if they just lose everything. Yeah, yeah. A little closer to home. I was a supporter of the Lincoln Project. I know that you were a senior advisor, but I did I read correctly that you left? You stepped down as a senior yeah. advisor. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell tell us what you know what's happening there and why you decided to step down as a senior advisor. You know, I think part of being a Democrat for me was about accountability and about holding. Uh, people to a higher standard, not just the lowest common denominator, which so oftentimes happens in this politics. And I've said this before, that ultimately, you know, I believed in the mission of the Lincoln Project. I believe that they were incredibly effective during the 2020 election. I think that they played a significant role in the defeat of Donald Trump. And I'm very proud of the work that we did in the 2020 cycle. But, uh, you know, they're, they're going through some things that they themselves have said, you know, have not met their mark of accountability and standards. And, you know, they're, they're trying to figure that out. But for me, you know, I, I thought the right thing to do was to, was to move on. Yeah. Yeah. There are definitely voices that, that were a part of the Lincoln project that are still going to make a lot of noise. I, you know, oh, Mike yeah. Madrid is close to home here in California. I think he's going to make <laughs> a lot of noise. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Yeah. He stepped away too. I, I think uh, I got to check mm-hmm. that fact check. He did. He did. Um, all right. So tell us morning hangover. You know, so it's uh, basically, I had this idea in 2016, actually, of a daily morning email that just kind of told everybody what was going on in country music that day. And I started it just as a hobby, just as a what if experiment, seeing, you know, if anyone would even care. Um, It was just something for me to do for fun. Much to my shock, it just became well read all over Music Row. Uh, everyone in Nashville w- was reading it and it became, you know, what it is now, I think, you know, one of the most widely read publications in country music. And, uh, and it really, it's just a lot of fun. You know, I get to spend my time pre COVID, you know, going to just going to live shows, getting to know all these guys, um, having the time of my life out there. Uh, you know, there's nothing more fun for me than hopping on the, uh, hopping on a tour on a, on a Thursday and spending three days on the road with them. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's so much fun. Yeah. And, uh, it's I'm very proud of what 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 we've built and what we're continuing to build. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I am not necessarily the biggest country music fan, but I'm becoming one reading it. You know, it's, <laughs> it's really cool how it's broken down. Watch it, DVR it, get it, view it. You have all these great sections that are really easy yeah. to reference. So lots of good videos that you can, you know, access right there and some music you can access right there. How do we find the morning hangover? Well, just go to morninghangover.com, sign up. It's free to subscribe to the email. And uh, we're on, you know, Twitter, Instagram, you know, at morning hangover. Um, and peasy, it's, yeah, yeah it, it's easy. And again, it's meant to, it's this, the way that I consume information is the way that I present it. You know, it's like, I wanted to create something that, that I would want to read as a fan. And, uh, and luckily other people did too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a few more questions. Um, what did I forget to ask you? Oh, I think you covered the whole gambit of things, my friend. I can't think of it. You know, <laughs> we just did a whole, you know, three decades worth of me. <laughs> <laughs> Believe it or not, I got, you know, I have uh, seven, eight pages worth of notes. I only got through about three of them. So I, I could go on for another couple <laughs> hours here. But another question, do you have any questions for me? I'd love to know, um, you know, just the, the, the even the title of, of, of this podcast uh, you know, lends itself to, I think, the goal, and it's an admirable goal, one that we, I, I hope we can achieve of, of just being able to have conversations without people blocking people and, you know, know, and canceling one another and all of that. So I'm curious kind of, you know, what came into you starting this in the first place? I've always been engaged and informed and I found myself being drawn more to thinkers, writers, politicians who weren't afraid of nuance, but there seemed to be less oxygen for those who appreciate some complexity to their views, to, to dive deep beneath those bumper sticker length talking points, you know? Mm-hmm. There's any number of these issues where I think people of goodwill that may end up on, you know, five degrees off a of center on one side or the other um, should be able to have conversations without thinking that we're enemies, you know? Yeah. Um, I want to be able to go to, my kids were going to a Christian school Uh, for about 10 years. I kind of joke about it, but like there was this nasty rumor that Corey might've voted for a Democrat once. Oh, it was a scam, (laughs) you know? And it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be. So, you know, and on religious issues too, I I grew up in a very observant Jewish household. We went to an Orthodox synagogue, but I became a Christian about 20 years ago. And um, my dad and I had very, very contentious conversations about it after I became a Christian. But over the years, those contentious conversations became very rich, loving conversations where we allowed for our differences, but, but also those differences forced each other to examine what we thought were our points of view and, and provide mm-hmm. more nuance to those points of view. So I, I'd like to create some space for more of that. Um, and I'm encouraged to see that there are, it's not just, you know, talk of politics and religion without killing each other. It's not just this program, you know, Pantsu Politics, uh, those ladies have been doing it for five years now. You know, there, there's plenty of other programs that are doing it. I just want to do, do more of it. So I appreciate you asking. Well, I appreciate you having me on and having this great conversation. It's been, it's yeah. been, uh, it's been wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for spending the time. I'm so glad to get to know you a little bit better. I hope this isn't the last time. Likewise, my friend. All right. Be well, Kurt. Thanks again. (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. 
That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.